Right, go ahead with the logic. Okay, Mark, logic one and two, Mark. Houston, we are set. We have a cryo press light. Roger, copy, cryo press light. Apollo 11, this is uh, Houston. Minus 10, 9, 8. We have a go for main engine start. We have main engine start. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Hello and welcome to Space Gen, the show where you find out all the latest from the space industry. You can catch our episodes on X-Ray FM every Wednesday at 8 a.m. or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and let's get into the news. All right, so Blue Origin, uh, which a lot of people think, you know, Blue Origin, they're trying to keep compete with SpaceX and they're going to send up cargo into slow Earth orbit, but they're actually also doing space tourism. And that kind of is in relation to the big competitor, which is Virgin Galactic, which was all over the headlines. You know, they're the publicly traded company now. Everybody's getting excited about that. But with Blue Origin, uh, they have pushed their deadline to send tourists up into space a year all the way over to 2020, which is just around the corner, so not that bad. Uh, The CEO of Blue Origin, his name's Bob Smith, uh, he told CNBC that they're currently testing commercial space flights that take passengers on an 11-minute flight to the boundary of space. And this is all going to be done on their new Shepard rocket. And the new Shepard rocket is, again... Blue Origin's competitor to almost like the Falcon 9, almost a little bit like the Starship, where they can rapidly reuse it, and it can carry quite a, a large cargo. And to quote what he said, he said, We're currently planning this year. Unfortunately, it's very unlikely we're going to get it done this year. We need a few more flights to make sure that we're all comfortable with verification. Uh, He also went on to say, We hold our customers to a very, very high standard here. We're never going to let them fly until we're absolutely ready. And we think we have a very, very good amount of confidence around the system itself. I think it's working very, very well. There's lots of varies in that statement. But we have to look at all the analysis and then convince ourselves that we're ready to go. So it'll probably be next year. Now, tickets to go into space on Blue Origin's New Shepard will initially start, and they were quite vague with this, it'll be priced in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And Smith said that they're going to start at that high price and then they're going to go down from there. But you know, Blue Origin's going to have some real competition when it comes to space tourism. You've got Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, and they're planning their first commercial space flight by May of 2020. So that clock is definitely ticking. However, since both companies have experienced delays on either side, it remains unclear exactly when that goal is going to become a reality. Uh, Virgin Galactic, by the way, this is a big piece of news. Virgin Galactic has 600 people paying $250,000 each for space tickets. And those space tourists are being trained right now. So they've taken a slight lead in the space tourism race uh, after kicking off this training program. And it's called the Astronaut Readiness Program. It's got a very cool name to it. And it's taking place right now at the Under Armour Global HQ in Baltimore. 
George Whitsides, who's the CEO of Virgin Galactic, said, Introducing an astronaut readiness program to our first customers marks an exciting point in our journey as we move closer and closer to the start of the commercial service. It's an important step in the process to ensure that our customers are prepared with equipment and with the knowledge and training that they savor every second of their spaceflight, which we hope will go beyond expectations. And you might think, what, what does it mean by every second? Well, if you think about it, the flight's not for multiple days. Uh, you're only going to have a little limited time in space, and you're paying a quarter of a million dollars. So I know if it was me and I was parting with that much money, I'd want to make sure that I'm getting every dime worth of time in space. Now, the program will start fitting uh, the participants with specially designed Under Armour spacesuits, and I'll tell you, they look really cool. It looks like something actually out of Star Trek, uh, and they're going to be wearing these uh, when they're in space. The participants will then go through a whole medical consultation, and they'll make sure, you know, are you meeting the nutrition and fitness needs for zero-G? And all these 600 people, they're from 60 countries around the world. Now, Claire Pelly, who's head of astronaut office, said, As we kick off the program, which we prepare future astronauts for transformational spaceflight experiences, we once again draw on the support from our unique pioneering community. In doing so, we can ensure that each journey with Virgin Galactic is as good and relevant as it can possibly be, not only before, but during and after the incredible personal experience of spaceflight. And like we just said, Virgin Galactic hopes to do this first launch of commercial space flights in mid-2020. So definitely keep your eye on this space, it's going to become very competitive. Now, talking about Starlink, you've heard, you know, there was the 60 Starlink uh, satellites that were sent up. Well, I'll tell you what, you should maybe look up to the sky because you might see the, as I'm going to call it, the Starlink Skytrain. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when these satellites get sent up, they're all packed in, like I said, like a pizza box, very densely put together package. And once they're in orbit, they kind of separate. Now, for a little while, you can see them all together, and it's like a line going through the sky. Now, it's all good and well saying, you know, go go have a look at this Starlink, but how are you going to know where to look? Well, let me tell you, there's a couple of different sites for this, and we're going to go through them a little bit. So, we'll start off with the first one, which is called heaven Dash above com. Now, that already has the Starlink Launch 2 page ready, so you can just click on it and see where it is. And if you go to the Starlink page, it shows the whole orbit. And most importantly, you want to make sure that you update the location tag. That's going to be in the top right-hand side of the page, so you can see all of the details about how to look up at Starlink from where you are. That brings me on to the next website, which is n2yo.com. And just to be clear, it's not n 2 Y0, it's n2yo.com. And unlike the previous website, once you go on, it automatically picks up your location and it sets it up for your browser. So when you start looking at, if you want to see the ISS, it'll show when is it passing over, what degree to look up, what direction to look, you know, southwest or something like that. And to be honest, I, I would say this is probably the best one of the whole bunch. Uh, it shows you even like a little small graphic, you know, where the satellites are moving in real time over the Earth. It's, it's really nice. So that's the one that I would say is probably the best. So it's n2yo.com. And then you should be able to figure out, you know, what, what direction to look and you'll see the Skytrain. 
So let me tell you a little bit about what you're going to see in the sky. So the Starlink satellites are going to be about 174 miles away from you. But each of the 60 satellites is equipped with an ion engine and that slowly raises its orbit and eventually it will go to 217 miles up. And astronomers, they have complained about this because, you know, these bright satellites, you can really mess up your scientific observations of the night sky, especially since SpaceX is planning to do about 12,000 and then they're adding another 30,000 to this mega constellation. And most importantly, you've got to remember there's big money in this. You know how much money the telecom companies are going to make? Imagine what this is going to be like for a global internet service. But Elon's doing a little something different. So he said that the company is looking into how to reduce the brightness of the satellites and other representatives at SpaceX also stress that Starlink satellites are designed for a mission life of between one and five years. And like I said before, the Starlink satellites will deorbit themselves uh, using their ion engines and burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. So although SpaceX is you know, launching these thousands and thousands of satellites, it's not going to be like the debris up there right now. It is going to be cleaning itself up if you want. And that's really important because we don't want to have this massive space junk field yard up in orbit. Something has to be done. We have to preempt it, and SpaceX looks like they're doing just that. And going on a little bit more of a SpaceX news, uh, Starship may fly for just $2 million. Now that's incredible. You might think $2 million is a lot of money, and you're right, it is a lot of money, but for a rocket launch, that's peanuts. So again, for old time's sake, let's just go over how awesome the Starship system is. Firstly, it's a reusable 100-passenger spaceship and it's stacked on top of a huge reusable rocket known as the Super Heavy. It'll also use just about $900,000 worth of propellant just to get off Earth into orbit. Elon stated uh, when he was doing a conversation with Lieutenant General John Thompson, who's the commander at the Space and Missile Systems Center, he said, you know, if you consider the operational costs, it's maybe like $2 million, and that's like way less than even a tiny rocket launch. So having something like Starship needs to be made. Elon then said this is a technical advance that will slash the cost of spaceflight by order of magnitude, allowing humanity to become a truly spacefaring species. So these missions are going to be quite varied. Uh, Starship and Super Heavy are designed primarily to help humanity settle on Mars, the Moon, and other deep space destinations. But in the end, SpaceX wants the Starship system to just take over all the company's needs. So Starlink, sending up commercial satellites, all of that. So if all goes to according to plan, SpaceX will launch satellites as early as 2020, maybe 2021, and ferry people around from point to point on the Earth around about that time as well. So we're going to have to talk about a bit of drama now, and it's to do with NASA dealing with Boeing and the commercial crew program. Now, a detailed government audit revealed that NASA went out of its way to overpay Boeing for its commercial crew program, or the CCP. And over the last several years, the NASA Inspector General has published a number of increasingly discouraging reports about Boeing's behavior and track record as a NASA contractor. NASA awarded fixed contracts worth between $4.2 billion and $2.6 billion to Boeing and SpaceX, respectively, to essentially accomplish the same goals, design, build, test, and fly new spacecraft capable of transporting NASA astronauts to and from the International Space Station. The intention behind the fixed price contracts was to hold contractors responsible for any delays that might occur over the development of the human-rated spacecraft, a task NASA acknowledged as challenging but far from unprecedented. 
Now, most likely, the bizarre events that would unfold in the years ahead uh, began on June 28, 2015 and culminated on September 1, 2016, the dates of the two catastrophic SpaceX Falcon 9 rockets. So you can see, under the stress, the agency may have ignored uh, common sense and basic contracting due diligence, uh, leading numerous officials to sign off on a plan that would subvert Boeing's fixed-price contract, paying the company an additional $287 million to prevent a perceived gap in NASA's astronaut access to the ISS. This all came about because, you know, NASA at that time believed that SpaceX failures could cause multiple years of delays. So it was making Boeing seem like the only available crew transporter provider really becoming available. But Starliner was already delayed by more than a year, and it was becoming increasingly unlikely that Boeing alone would be able to ensure the continuous NASA access to the International Space Station. NASA argued in its attempted response to defend the audit, saying that the price increase was agreed by NASA and Boeing, and was reviewed and approved by numerous NASA officials at the Kennedy Space Center and headquarters. And you know what's really amazing? This whole report, this OIG, this was a 50-page detailed analysis of the behavior that was at best inept and at worst deeply corrupt. The OIG's analysis uncovered some uncomfortable revelations about NASA's relationship with Boeing in a different realm than usual, which was NASA's commercial crew program. But you know, with the whole commercial crew program, uh, NASA officials somehow failed to realize or remember that Boeing owned multiple Soyuz seats during the prolonged negotiations. And then they subsequently awarded Boeing an additional $287 million to expedite Starliner production and preparations to try and avoid this access gap. Literally, the very next week after that, Boeing asked NASA if it wanted to buy five Soyuz seats that it had already acquired to send NASA astronauts to the ISS. So let's just put it into three basic explanations. Number one, Boeing intentionally withheld an obvious and partial solution to the perceived gap in astronauts having access to the ISS, exploiting NASA's panic to extract a 7% premium from its otherwise fixed Starliner development contract. Number two, through gross negligence and the lack of basic contracting due diligence, NASA ignored obvious and cheaper possible solutions at hand, taking Boeing's word for granted and opening up the big piggy bank. And lastly, number three, a partial crew access analysis study ignored multiple obvious and preferable options to give numerous NASA officials an excuse to violate fixed price contracting principles and pay Boeing a substantial premium. You know, in July of 2019, a report by the U.S. Government of Accountability Office, the GAO, revealed that NASA was consistently paying Boeing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of award fees as part of the company's SLS booster, which is the core stage, production contract. Which, by the way, is no less than four years behind schedule and $1.8 billion over budget. From 2014 to 2018, NASA awarded Boeing a total of $271 million in award fees. And in several of those years, NASA's reports described Boeing's performance as good, very good, you know, excellent, while Boeing repeatedly fumbled with the SLS core stage production. The fact remains that NASA, according to the Inspector General, never approached SpaceX as part of their 2016-2017 efforts to prevent a crew access gap. 
makes you question it. Now, given that the commercial crew has two partners, you know, Boeing and SpaceX, the decision was highly improper regardless of the circumstances, and even more inexplicable by the fact that NASA was apparently well aware that SpaceX's Crew Dragon had significantly shorter lead times and cost far less than the Starliner. This would have meant that, you know, if NASA had approached SpaceX to attempt to mitigate the access gap, SpaceX, you know, they could have easily said, you know what, we'll do it much cheaper, much faster, or, you know, just inject a little bit of good faith competition. Finally, and perhaps the most disturbingly of all, NASA's OIG investigators were told by several of NASA's officials that, in spite of several preferable alternatives, they ultimately chose to sign off Boeing's demanded price increase because they were worried that Boeing would quit. But a lot remains unsaid, like why are those officials, why did they believe that Boeing's full withdrawal from the commercial crew program was a serious risk, and how they came to that conclusion? So I'll tell you, when I read the article on all of this, I, I can tell you it, they're definitely going to make a film, this is going to become a movie, and I'll tell you, it'd be quite a good movie, I, I know I'd watch it, but we'll have to see, maybe it'll become a thing, I don't know. So here's something really cool, would you believe me if I told you oxygen existed on Mars? I know, it kind of sounds a little cool. Well, it behaves, interestingly, uh, in a way that NASA scientists can't even explain yet. So, a portable chemistry lab inside the Curiosity rover, which is on Mars, analyzed the makeup of Martian air above the Gale Crater over the course of six years. And scientists, you know, they were surprised to find out that it had detected uh, seasonal variations in oxygen on Mars. And it couldn't be explained through any known chemical process. Uh, apparently, the level of oxygen rose up by 30% in spring and summer. The scientists likened the oxygen mystery as a yet unsolved puzzle of methane on Mars. So let me explain. So methane apparently increases as much as 60% in summer, and nobody knows why. This is all an unknown. Oxygen and methane can be products of biological processes, but scientists said that the rover doesn't have any way of knowing whether the source can be a gas due to the biology or geology. And here's the part where it makes you really think. Uh, they're now leaning heavily towards a non-biological explanation. Now, this in combination with NASA's 2020 rover that's going to be sent off, uh, and let me tell you a little bit about that, that's going to go off, and once it gets there, it's going to search for alien microfossils to start painting a more coherent picture of why is all of this happening. But let's go into a bit more detail. So it's going to go to the Jezero Crater, which is a 28-mile-wide crater. Uh, it's a big hole in the ground of Mars. And what's cool is it's got plenty of deposits of minerals that are really good for preserving microfossils, especially here on Earth. So just like the 96-mile-wide Gale Crater, which NASA's Curiosity Mars rover went to, Jezero apparently hosted a lake in the ancient past. The orbital imagery also revealed remnants of a large delta in Jezero, which marks where the river may have drained. And deltas are good areas to search for signs of life. And there's a lot of data that we can find out from that. So that's why NASA chose Jezero for the Mars 2020 rover landing. And here's something cool. One of the newfound hydrated silica outcrops lies right at the edge of the Jezero Delta at low elevation. If minerals formed where they are now, which is no guarantee since the materials could have been washed out from afar, they may represent the Delta's lowest layer. 
Jack Mustard, who's a professor of Earth, Environmental and Planetary Sciences at Brown, said that the material forms a bottom layer of the delta, which is the most productive in preserving biosignatures. He then said, so if you can find that bottom set layer and that layer has a lot of silica in it, that's a double bonus. But here's my question, why is this happening all so quickly? I'm not quite sure, but it's pretty clear that we're going to learn something pretty major that we never knew was possible up to now. Again, this is all news we just had in the last week. This is how quick things are starting to move, and as I've said before, we really are heading into a new space age. So if you like hearing about the news, make sure to tune in every Wednesday at 8am on X-Ray FM, or on SoundCloud by searching Space Gen. I'm your host, Daniel Trainer, and I'll see you next time.